Amen. I pray that uh, this week has been a prosperous one for you. I pray that you have allowed God to use this time to sharpen your affections for Him, your devotion to His Word, and, and your love for His church. As I was as I was sitting there or standing there worshiping earlier, I was allowing my mind to to look forward with anticipation to that time when we when we do gather and wondering what what will that feel like? What will it feel like to have this room yet again full of my brothers and my sisters? And it struck me in that moment it's gonna depend a whole lot on what we do between now and then. If, if we allow our, ourselves to grow cold during this time, if we allow ourselves to get lax in our quiet time with God and in keeping our heart fixed on Him in worship, and if we, if we allow ourselves to, to stray away from His Word during this time of separation, then when we come back together in this room, it's, I don't know what it's really going to be. And, and so I, I would encourage you, don't, don't stray away from those disciplines that God has given us. He didn't just give us the discipline of being in His Word and, and of spending time in prayer and of leading our families in worship. He didn't just give us those during the times when we're all together, but He, he gave us those for times just like this, remembering that the early church was a scattered church and that those disciplines can sharpen our affections, they can, they can really prepare us so that when we do have those moments of coming together, when we do have those moments of solidarity, when we do have those moments when we can all really gather, it's that much more special. It's that much more meaningful. And so I'm, I plead with you this morning, if that's not, that's not what your week has looked like, if that's, that's not what these last few days have looked like in your life, consider this, consider this a, a reminder and a warning that you could be in great danger. And, and that you need to get back to the basics of, of what God has called you to. And so I realize that, um, that the days are all just blending together now. That because some of you are not working at all, many of you are working from home because none of us are sending our children to school, that it's easy for the dates and the days to all just blend together. And that for many of you, you woke up this morning with no idea that this is Palm Sunday. And... So it seemed good to me in light of the fact that this is, in fact, Palm Sunday, that, that day when we look backwards some 2,000 years to the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. It seemed good to me to hit pause on our study of Mark and to fast forward a few years and, and to study this, this glorious day, Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem. And seemed like an opportunity for us to prepare our hearts then for Holy Week or, or Passion Week, as it's often called, that comes on the backside of Palm Sunday. Passion comes from, comes from the Latin word that means to endure or to suffer. And make no mistake, what Jesus was stepping off into, even, even as people sang his praises as he entered into the city of David, what Jesus was stepping off into was a time of great suffering, a time of incredible endurance. And so for those of you that perhaps you're new to the faith or, or, or maybe you're just returning after some time, um, allow me to just give you a brief rundown of what Holy Week looks like. And now the, the, the chronology, the ordering of, of Holy Week is, is fairly easy, but 
figuring out the exact days that each thing occurred. There, there's people that argue about this. There's, there's, there's plenty of different ideas about how we understand what happened or what day each thing happened on. And the reason for this has to do with the way that we track time. It has to do with the way that the first century Jews in, in Israel track time. You see, the people that were, the people that were in the south, closest to, closest to Jerusalem, the more religious of the people, they tracked each day as beginning at sundown. Looking back to the creation story in Genesis where we read that it was evening and it was morning, the first day. They count each day as beginning at sundown. And yet the folks from the north in Galilee, the region where Jesus and his, and his disciples came from, they counted each new day as beginning at sunup. And then, of course, us today, we count each new day as beginning at midnight. So you've got three different ways of determining when each new day began. And so a, an event, depending on what time of day an event happens, some people might believe that it happened on a, on a Sunday, some people on a Monday, some people somewhere else. And so it, it, it's, it's not as easy to put, this, to, to put a day to each one of these events as, as you might think. And so for preaching purposes, I just stick to what is the most traditional, the most orthodox, the most widely held of views, and that begins with Palm Sunday happening on Sunday. Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus entered in this, this celebratory fashion as he enters into Jerusalem. And then Monday, Monday was a day when he went to the temple and it was there that he cleansed the temple, calling it a den of robbers. Then it's Tuesday and Tuesday is a day of great teaching. Jesus is back in the temple and he's there. And while he's there, he's confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders. He has a conflict with them there. And then as Jesus and his disciples, as they leave the temple and, and his disciples are looking up and they're just, they're just, they're just looking at the glory of this, this temple, this place of prayer, this place that, that God has, has built for his people to gather together and to honor and to worship him. And it's then that Jesus looks at him. He says, listen, this thing will not last. It will not just be laid low, but it will be so destroyed that not one stone shall rest upon another. And then he leads his disciples up onto the Mount of Olives. It's still Tuesday. And he leads his disciples up on the Mount of Olives, and he continues his teaching there. It's uh, the, the Olivet Discourse. Have you heard that, that term before? It's a time where Jesus was up there on the mountain, and he was preparing his disciples because he wasn't going to be with them much longer. Eventually, he was going to ascend and be with the Father. And so he was preparing them. Um, for this time of waiting by pointing them forward to his ultimate return. He was telling them what the end times were meant to look like. And so he spends this Tuesday, this day of teaching up there on the mountain, preparing the hearts of his, of his followers. And then it's Wednesday. And Wednesday was the day when the religious leaders, they began to plot to kill Jesus, to take his life. It was on Wednesday where Judas entered into this plot and he agreed that he would betray Jesus, the one that he had followed for some three years. And now it's Thursday and Thursday was the day when Jesus and his disciples would, would celebrate the Passover. And again, it has to do with the way that we understand dates, the, the way that we understand days as to why Jesus and his disciples could celebrate Passover on Thursday while others would celebrate it later in the week. But the point is that Jesus and his disciples, they were there and they were celebrating the Passover. And it was at the end of the Passover when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And so we call Thursday Maundy Thursday. Maundy is just a fancy word for, for command. It was that Jesus commanded us. He had told us that we're to celebrate the Lord's Supper forever going forward until, until his return. It was that same Thursday night that Jesus then retreated and he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he prayed. He asked his father, if there's another plan, let's execute on this other plan. Because I know that what's coming, it's not going to be fun. I don't long for this. Physically, I don't long for this. Spiritually, I don't long for this. Emotionally, I don't long for this thing that's coming. It was that same night, that Thursday, where he was arrested. He was beaten. He was, he was dragged away. He was imprisoned. And it's from that point forward, we would never find Jesus to be free again, at least not physically free during his earthly life. 
then it's Friday. Good Friday, as we call it. And Jesus is tried by the Sanhedrin, then by Pilate, then by Herod. And ultimately, he's sentenced to die. He's beaten. He's flogged. He's led up to Golgotha. And it's there that he was crucified, that he died, that he satisfied the fullness of his father's wrath, that he died the death that you and I belong, that belong to you and I, that you and I deserve. It was there that he died. It was then that he was buried in a, in a tomb, a borrowed tomb. That's Good Friday. And then comes Saturday, the Sabbath where his disciples would rest, where they would prepare to go back the next day and to, and, and, and to take care of his body, to do the things that you were intended to do with a dead body. And then it's Sunday, Easter Sunday, when his disciples, the, the women first, Mary, and then Mary, the mother of James, and then Salome, as, they, as they, go, they go there to this borrowed grave, they go there to the tomb, and they find that the stone's been rolled away, and they find that Jesus is not there. And it's there that they encounter the angel that tells them, he is not here, he is risen. That's that's Easter. That's Easter Sunday. And so that is Holy Week. That is Passion Week. A week that is so very critical to not just the 33-year ministry of Jesus Christ, but to all, all creation. All creation had been building towards this day, towards this week that we call today Passion Week. It was not just a week of great sorrow and endurance. It was a week of incredible triumph and victory. That, our, that the victory that we now celebrate the victory that we now, the freedom that we now enjoy, that it was bought for us on this day. And Jesus knew exactly why he was there. Jesus knew that he wasn't swept up in something that was greater than himself. He wasn't, he wasn't just dragged away by some mob, that Jesus was laying down his life, that it was his to lay down, it was his to take up again, that nobody would take his life one second sooner than it was intended to be laid down. And so Jesus wasn't, he wasn't carried away in something that was outside of himself. He knew what he was doing. He was doing it for a purpose. We look back today recognizing that it were not, if it were not for this week, that Jesus' gospel message would be a lie. If it were not for this week, then Jesus' promise of salvation would be empty. If it were not for this week, that Jesus would be a liar and a blasphemer and a man worthy of death. That if it were not for this week, that we ourselves would still be lost in our sin. If it were not for this week, then we would have no hope in this world. If it were not for this week, then in the words of Paul, we are to be pitied amongst all the earth. That more than anybody else in all the earth, we are to be pitied if it were not for this week. That's the importance of this week. And if you will allow me one more point of introduction, if you were there with us on, uh, if you gathered together here with us on Wednesday night as we walked through our time of study, you'll recall that we studied the raising of a dead man by the name of Lazarus, a guy called Lazarus in the 11th chapter of John, and you'll recall that Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha, they were loved by Jesus. John tells us explicitly that, that Jesus loved them, he cared greatly for them, and then Lazarus became sick. So the sisters, Mary and Martha, they sent word to Jesus and they said, the man that you love is sick, knowing that Jesus had it within himself to come back and to heal his friend. Knowing that he had the power, having seen what he had done for other people, knowing that Jesus had the power to come back and to heal his friend, and yet Jesus delayed so that the world could see the, the glory of his father, so that his followers would recognize the reality and the, and the power in his preaching and in his person. He delayed, he waited, so that by the time Jesus arrived back in Bethany, he found his friend had been dead for four days. And yet then in the presence of many people, there were people that, you see, the people that had been following Jesus because they had seen his miracles. They had heard his preaching. There was people that were there because they loved Lazarus and they were there mourning his death. There were people that were just passing through because the Passover was near. But in front of these people, hundreds of people, perhaps thousands of people, Jesus was just a word. Lazarus, come out. Raise his friend, raise his friend from the dead. Man, it had been dead four days to the point of being stinky dead there in the tomb. That was just a word Jesus raised him up, pointing forward to the ultimate resurrection, pointing forward to his own resurrection from the dead and to the ultimate resurrection that will come when he returns. Shows that he has power, power even over death. 
And we talked about the fact that night that you don't get to do things like this in the sight of so many people and keep your life. To claim to be the Son of God and to show this kind of power and this kind of authority, there were going to be certainly people that did not, that did not receive this well. And so the responses to this incredible miracle are just, just varied widely. And so I want to, I want to look with you together. at um, We look at, back at John 11, and there's a portion of text that we didn't read then that night, and I'm going to read for you now, that immediately follows this raising of Lazarus from the dead. I read in verse 45 of John's uh, Gospel, chapter 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly amongst the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let him know so that they might arrest him. You see, the the response to this miracle that Jesus had performed, it... It was dependent upon the way in which these people viewed these events. It was dependent upon the focus that these people had as they came into contact. This was the setting for, good, for, uh, for Palm Sunday. This was the setting for Holy Week. That Jesus had performed this miracle. He had raised this man from the dead. He had done it before the eyes of many. And yet the response of the people that saw this, it was going to be widely varied. There were going to be some who were going to look in awe and wonderment. They were going to recognize that this truly was the Messiah, the Son of God. The promised one that had come to raise the dead. That had come to overcome all the enemies of God's people. That had come to make all things right. But then there were going to be others that were going to seek his death. These religious leaders, they were going to seek his death. Because what we understand now is that to each group involved, to each group that was standing there and watching this miracle, the way they understood who Jesus was was going to be run through their own filter. The way they understood who Jesus was was going to be run through their own filter of theology. Who do they believe God to be and what do they believe his promises to be? Through their own history, through their own hurts, through their own pride, through their own desires. That to each and every person that was standing there on that roadside as they watched Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus was going to be somebody different to every single person standing along that road. And the world today would tell you this is a good thing and I tell you no. Jesus is not who you want him to be. Jesus is who he is or he's nobody at all. That you don't get to make Jesus into your own puppet. That you don't get to form Jesus into your own image. That a Jesus that's made in our own image, that a Jesus is made just to meet our needs the way that we want to experience him, that is no Jesus. And there is no salvation found in that Jesus. That it is not a good thing. That we do not all get our own reality. We do not get our own Jesus. We don't get to form this Jesus that makes us feel good about ourselves or that gives us comfort in the night. That there is only one Jesus and we're to come to his word and see who this one Jesus is. This is the only Jesus that's worthy of praise. This is the only Jesus that can save. And so I say to you, no, we don't get to have our own Jesus. We don't get to run him through our own filter. 
That's why I've spent so much time with you over this last year and a half. That's why we have, as a church have worked so hard to make sure that the only Jesus that we are looking to is the Jesus of the Bible. The historical Jesus, the real Jesus, the eternal Jesus, the Jesus that God has chosen to reveal to us. And it occurs to me that during this time of suffering, during this time of, of quarantine, during this time of fear, that there are more people than ever perhaps looking to Jesus. There are more people than ever perhaps that are looking and they're coming just out of curiosity. Who is this Jesus? Just like many people had come because of the miracles that he had performed and they were just looking. Not that they knew even what they were looking for. Not that they knew what they were looking at. They were just stumbling along the roadside and they were wondering, who is this guy? I'm curious. There are many people today that are curious about Jesus, perhaps more than at any time in recent history. More people than ever before that are looking and they're curious about who this Jesus is. And perhaps they look at some of his followers, look at some of his disciples, some of these men that have been with him for three years and they go, who is this guy? That we've got this opportunity to express to the world who Jesus really is. That the world's going to look to us as the people that say we've been following him. The world's going to look to us as the people that have been singing praises to him and claiming to give our life to him. They're going to look to us and they're going to say, who is this Jesus? And if we can't give them a good answer, they're going to make it up for themselves. They're going to decide for themselves who Jesus is. And every time man sets about to make up for themselves a Jesus, he never matches up with Scripture. And so I believe that now as much as ever in our life, it is incumbent upon us, the church, Jesus' bride, to know who he is. So that's my prayer for Holy Week. That's my prayer for Passion Week 2020. That we would so fix our eyes on the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus that really was, that we would have an answer right there on the tip of our tongue. So that when our neighbors look to us and they say, who is this Jesus and why do you find hope in him? That we'll be able to give, him, give them right answers. The answers that lead to, lead to eternal life. Because otherwise there is no hope. So it's with that incredibly long introduction that we, uh, we get to our text this morning. So if you're there in your home, go ahead and stand to your feet, please. We're going to be in the 19th chapter of Luke's gospel. I'll give you a minute to get there. I know we've, we've broken our pattern, so you may not have turned there. So we're in Luke, the 19th chapter of Luke, and I'm going to begin in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Beth, uh, Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on one, who, one on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, they went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, these very stones would cry out. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. All God's people said, 
Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the truth of your gospel. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. A man that really did come to earth at the appointed time. That we're not left to make up our own Jesus, our own picture of our own Savior. That we can look through your holy word and see an image of who he really is. And the promises that he really makes. And on account of these faithful witnesses that we can place our trust in him. Having no doubts. Having no second thoughts. That he really is the only Savior sent from heaven. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. I feel off today. I'm just going to confess it. I feel off today. I'm tired of preaching to a camera. I'm, I'm really, really tired of preaching to a camera. And there's some people here, and I love you six people that are here. I love you lots. I'm sick of this, man. It's not in my sermon. It's, I just, man, I, I feel off, okay? I'm confessing to you people at home. I feel off. So pray for me. So we, we come to this text, this beautiful text of Jesus making this, this entry into Jerusalem. And it's, and it's interesting because what we see is all throughout Jesus, you know, we're in the second chapter of Mark, and, and, and all throughout Jesus' ministry, particularly in the early days, we see him, he's, he's healing people, and he's performing these miracles, and then immediately he's looking to people, and he's telling them just, shh, don't go tell anybody. And, and that the reason for that is that it just wasn't time yet. It wasn't time for him to press the issue. It wasn't time for him to be celebrated in this way. It wasn't, it wasn't time because, number one, he knew that the crowds were going to flock and they're just too easily pleased and they were just going to settle for something so much less than the gospel. But in addition to that, he wasn't going to lay down his life one second sooner than the appointed time. But now that it was time, now that he had fulfilled all righteousness, now that he, was, he, he, he had done what the Father had called him to do and he was going to, in this last act of righteousness, lay down his life, the Passover was the appointed time. At the very moment when the Passover lambs were going, to be, were going to be slaughtered, he was going to lay down his life. And so what we see here is a picture of Jesus pressing the issue. And it says, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Always up. You'll notice in Scripture that people are always going up to Jerusalem even when they're traveling south. And the reason is because Jerusalem is a city on a hill. It, it, it's a city that's some 2,500 feet above sea level. And so as you go there, what you find is it's, it's up, built up onto, onto a plateau. And so other cities such as, say, Jericho is some 850 feet below sea level. So that this path that Jesus walked, even though it wasn't a northern path, even though it wasn't a northern trip, it was an uphill, more than 3,000 foot uphill climb for him. So that this trip was not an easy one, but it's always up. It's always up to Jerusalem. And, and then we, we get to, to the name of the city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Tied to the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. That this was the city of peace. This is, the, this is the place where God had allowed his temple to be built. This is a place where the ark was going to be stored. This is a place where people came to worship and to sacrifice. This was a special place. This was a special place in the life of God's people. And this was a place where God had done great things. And then verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you. Where on entering it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those that were sent 
went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And so they're, they're, coming, near to, they're coming near to Jerusalem, and, and they're, at, they're, at, they're coming near to Bethpage and to, and to Bethany, and Jesus tells his disciples to go into the town. And there, once they go into this town, that they're going to find a colt. A colt is an animal less than four years old. Now, Matthew and John, they make clear that this is a donkey. This is a colt of a donkey that they're going to find there. And that when the men find this donkey and they untie it, if anybody comes out and says, man, what are you doing? That's my donkey, not yours. They're to say, the Lord has need of it. Now, there's a number of teachers and, and preachers that believe that what this was, was this was some, this was supernatural knowledge given to Jesus. And certainly that's possible. That, that, this was, that this was just another one of those miraculous type things where Jesus had this knowledge, this divine knowledge that allowed him to know where this cult would be and that allowed him to know that these people would let loose of the cult if, these, if, if it was just expressed to them that the Lord had need of it. But I don't know that all that's completely necessary. It seems to me that it's perhaps more likely that what happened was Jesus had some followers in this town and that he had made arrangements with these followers that, look, my guys are going to come at the appointed time and they're going to ask for this donkey. And that the code word, so to speak, was the Lord has need of it. But either way, we can tell that Jesus was dead set. It was very important to Jesus that when he made this triumphal entry, when he entered into Jerusalem, that he did it on the colt of a donkey. We see why if we look backwards to the prophet Zechariah. His words in Zechariah 9.9, God says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Israel. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What we see here is Jesus actively working to fulfill this prophecy. And that's a fascinating thing. Because by, by best counts, Jesus fulfilled over 400 prophecies throughout his lifetime. And yet, this seems to me to be the only time that we see him actively working in his humanity to fulfill one. You think about it, the, the, the prophecies told us that Jesus, the, the Savior, the Messiah, that he would be born in Bethlehem. He had no control over where he was born, not in his humanity at least. Or it said that the Messiah would be called back from Egypt, that he would flee into Egypt and he would come back from Egypt. Again, Jesus is a baby. He had no control over that, that his parents would flee from Herod into Egypt and come back. The fact that his disciples would abandon him, the fact that his, his, no bones in his body would be broken, the fact that he would be offered wine there on the cross, the, the, all, these, all these realities, all these truths, in no instance... Was he actively in his humanity fulfilling these things? And yet what we see here is that this was very important to him. That he was working in his humanity for, to fulfill exactly this prophecy. That he would ride in on the foal, on the colt of a donkey. So we ask ourselves, why? Why was this such an important part of this? Why did it matter what animal Jesus rode into Jerusalem in? And it, 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 I believe, it occurs to me that what Jesus was doing, he was taking yet another opportunity to teach about the kingdom of God. From the moment of his birth to the moment of his death, Jesus was trying to make clear to his disciples and us today what the kingdom of God is like, just parable after parable, trying to teach because he knows how difficult it is to grasp the reality of the kingdom of God. That for the people then, they believed that when the Messiah was going to come, he was going to come in great power, swinging a sword. That he was going to slay the enemies of Israel, the physical enemies, the Romans in this time. He was going to slay them. He was going to defeat them. He was going to free his people physically as a nation. They believed that he was going to come, he was going to make all things right in that instance, that he was going to be a God of war, a Messiah of war, that their king was going to be a wartime king, and that's not the way that Jesus came. Not only did he not come in the way that they expected, but he didn't stay. They believed the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to rule over them right here on earth. They didn't recognize in that moment that what was going to happen was he was going to be here for a season. 
He was going to do all that needed to be done to defeat those enemies, but then he was going to retreat. He was going to return to his father. He knew that during these times of waiting, there was going to be great confusion by his people. There were going to be times when they were going to wonder, has he lost? Has he lied? Has he forgotten us? That the kingdom of God was not going to at all meet their expectations. And so I believe that he took every opportunity he could to help teach. And I believe that riding in on the colt of a donkey, that riding in on the back of a, of a, of a four-year-old donkey, I believe that this was a, yet another opportunity for him to cl- send a clear signal because a donkey is a peacetime animal. Kings don't ride out to war on the backs of baby donkeys. They ride on great white horses looking down upon the heads of their enemies. And so I believe that what Jesus was doing in fulfilling this prophecy was he was reminding his people that I come now in peace. That the victory that I bring to you now is not going to be victory won by the sword. That I come now in peace and in mercy. And I show that to you now by riding in on the colt. The colt of an ass is what scripture tells us. So that this donkey, this peacetime animal, this is a signal, this is a teaching tool for Jesus to his people. And we read the words, behold, your long-awaited king, O Israel, he comes humble and riding on the foal of a donkey. Verse 36, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So that as Jesus makes his way into this holy city, he's on the road down towards the holy city, people are spreading out a, a red carpet, so to speak, of their robes. They're just, they're just paving the way for Jesus with their own clothing, with their own cloaks, paving a way as he enters in and we read in, in, in other Gospels that they were, they were waving palm leaves. That's where we get the name Palm Sunday from. That they're, they're waving palm leaves and they were, they were singing these praises to him. And why palm leaves? We know why the donkey, but, but now why palm leaves? We're special about palm leaves. We don't see today when somebody wins a Super Bowl, we don't see people rushing out to the street and waving palm leaves before them. Well, historians tell us that during that 400-year period between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, actually 100 years before Jesus, that there was a rebellion. There was a Syrian by the name of uh, Antiochus, and, and he was there, and he had desecrated the temple. He had called people to worship Zeus there in God's holy temple. And we, hear, we read that there's a priest named Mattathias, and priest refu- this priest refused to do this. So another man stepped in, and he, he attempted to o- offer sacrifices on behalf of Mattathias to Zeus. And Mattathias wouldn't have it. And so he slayed this man, and it started a revolution. It started a war. So that This man named Mattathias and his sons, his five sons, they retreated out to the wilderness because they had begun something that was really big. And Mattathias would eventually die, but his son, Judas Maccabees, he would lead the revolution. He would lead these people as they attacked the Syrians, as they won back and cleansed the temple, as they took back control of Jerusalem. And the people, they they called this this word Maccabees, they called this family the hammer. What an awesome name. If you're going to lead a revolution, I'd love to be called the hammer. And so Judas Maccabees, the hammer, he had led this revolution and he had, he had won back the, he had won back Jerusalem. He had cleansed the temple. And so they celebrate this festival because of this now. We call it Hanukkah, the festival of lights. That's where Hanukkah comes from is this time when the hammer cleansed the temple. Well, eventually he would die. And then his brother, Simon Maccabees, he would continue on with this revolution and they would completely chase the Syrians all the way out of Jerusalem. And then This Simon Maccabees, he would be named king of Israel. Israel finally had their own king, no longer reporting to another. They finally had their own king just as they wanted. And historians tell us that what happened was Simon Maccabees, he rolled into Jerusalem. Guess what he rode on? A donkey. Trying to send this signal that perhaps he himself was the Messiah. And that as he rode in, that people waved palm leaves. 
That palm leaves became such a, a, such a picture of military victory, became such a picture of, of strength and power and might, that whenever the Israelites printed their own money, whenever they printed their own coins, that on the, on the face of those coins, you would find a palm leaf. This is a reminder of this great military victory. And so what we see here is that as Jesus is riding in, and he's sending a signal that I come in peace, the people were anticipating war. They were seeing victory. They were seeing a military battle. They were seeing something greater than that, greater than that happening. And so despite Jesus' signal to these people, they were picturing a hammer. They wanted a hammer. They wanted one just like Simon Maccabees. It's the same battle that we fight today. Because what happens is the Israelites, they believe that their enemies were physical. They believe that all their enemies were the nations that oppressed them. Whether it was the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the, or the Greeks or now the Romans. They believe that all their, all their enemies, all the battles that needed to be fought, that they were physical, that they were now. That there were these temporary things that came before them. They didn't recognize that Jesus meant what he said when he said that my kingdom is not of this world. Do you remember that he said that to Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. That he's come to fight a spiritual battle. You remember the call to the church from Paul in Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the confusion that we battle against today. Because we look around us and we see the, we see the enemies of sickness. We see the enemies of brokenness. We see the enemies of, of marriages that aren't working or children that have rebelled. And we want Jesus to just fix those things. Jesus, would you just come and fix these things right now? But here's the thing. The Maccabees, they didn't rule forever. He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the promised eternal king. And so just facing these earthly enemies, just facing these temporary battles, even if you overcome them in the moment, there's going to be something else waiting behind it. That Jesus came to wage an eternal war. That he came to win eternal freedom for his people. And that that battle is fought on a spiritual plane. And the people just, they simply didn't get it. As a result of that, people chose not to follow him. You see, everybody wants to follow after a wartime king. Everybody wants to follow after the Jesus that swings the sword. Everybody wants to follow after this Jesus that promises immediate victory. The victory the way that we deem victory to look. But when we look at a Jesus that lays down his life, when we look at a Jesus that comes in peace, when we look to a Jesus that fights on this spiritual plane, that he fights the spiritual battles, people aren't so hungry to line up. What you'll see there, continue on in John's gospel, is we, after the triumphal entry, that, that there's some people that are... That are they're wanting to meet with Jesus. They're Greeks. They're not Jews. They're Greeks. Perhaps they're Greeks that have come to Judaism, but they, they weren't people that had grown up hearing the stories of the Messiah, anticipating a Messiah, making up for themselves their own version of what the Messiah would look like. And so these Greeks, they had sent word to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, we want to know more about you. And so his disciples came to him, and they said, hey, Jesus, would you, would you meet with these people? Would you talk with these people about what it is that you're doing? I read in verse 20 of John chapter 12. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. Now I think this is Jesus answering the Greeks. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his wife, is not his wife, don't hate your wife. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He's saying, look, you've got to lay down your life. You want to know where I'm going? I'm going to lay down my life. This kingdom can't come unless I lay down my life. 
Real life can't come unless I lay down my life. I've not come to, swing, to, to wage war like the Maccabees. I've not come to swing a sword. I've come in peace. I've come in mercy. And I've come to lay down my life. If that's what you desire, then follow me. If what you desire in your heart is to lay down your life and to have eternal freedom, to have eternal life, then you come and you lay down your life alongside me. That's not what the people wanted. That's not what the people expected. But in this moment, they still cried out. Mark tells us they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. In, in, in Hebrew, what this means is give us salvation now. It's a plea. It's a cry. God, give us salvation now. They were crying out to Jesus. Jesus, would you free us? We believe that you are from God. We believe that free, freedom comes from God. And we're crying out to you now on this day. Would you free us? These are the words of the Hillel. Psalms 113 through 118. The children even would have been familiar with this because families during these during these holy days, during these special times, during these feasts and during these festivals, the people would often recite these psalms. They would sing these psalms to each other in anticipation of the freedom that was coming. And so we, we hear the words that are cried out to Jesus as he comes along the road. And they remind us of Psalm 118, 25 through 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Hosanna, we pray. Save us, O Lord, we pray. Give us salvation now, we pray. The people longed for salvation. The problem is their picture of salvation was very different from the salvation they really needed. They believed they needed temporary salvation, earthly salvation, physical salvation from the Romans. They looked back to the Exodus in Israel. They saw that kind of salvation as a salvation that they needed. And Jesus says, no, I've come to bring you something so much more. But clearly they did, at least at some level, recognize that Jesus was a Savior. They recognized that salvation was available in Jesus. They realized that Jesus was the one sent from God to free Israel, to offer salvation to Israel. And yet we know that these cries would change. Because Jesus didn't meet up to their expectations, because Jesus was not, not the one that they had expect, expected and anticipated, because he did not act in accordance with their wishes, we know that these cries of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we know that they would shift to crucify him. That they would be joining right alongside these religious leaders in their desire to see him crucified and killed, beaten and mocked and scourged. They, we, we know that that was, that, was their, that was their shift and how quickly they made this shift. That even as they stood along the roadside and they sang out praises, Jesus in his spirit, he knew right then, you don't mean this. He knew how fickle they were. He knew how easily they would be dragged away by their own emotions. And so at this moment, though, they're, they're praising him. Verse 39 in this morning's text. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I love his response. He's reminding them the words at the very beginning of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning, he was with God. There was not anything made that was not made through him. Everything that came, came through Jesus. And so that is these Pharisees and these leaders, they came and they said, Hey, you need to tell your disciples to be quiet. You need to tell these people to stop praising you. He reminds them, I made these people. I made everything that is, and I made you too. I made the angels in heaven. And they've all been created for the sake of worshiping me. They've been created for worship. They've been created for this very thing that you're experiencing right now. So no, I will not tell them to be quiet. And even if you were to cause them to be quiet, these very rocks would stand up and cry out because I made them too. There's nothing in all creation that I have not made. And as the one that has made it all, I am due their worship. I'm due their praise. So no, I'm not going to tell them to be quiet. One of my very favorite things that I brought back from Israel 
Number one is my shofar, and I'm still practicing it. I'm still looking forward to the day. I, I think I can hit two notes now on the shofar. I can hit like a really low note and a really screechy high note. And so if I can figure out some notes in between, it's going to be awesome when we come back together and I call us to worship with a shofar. But the second coolest thing, maybe the coolest thing that I brought back from Israel was this rock. So we were there on the Mount of Olives, the, the same path that, that Jesus traveled. And you look around and there's just rocks. Just everywhere you look, there's, there's rocks. And rocks don't have babies. And rocks don't fly. So it's reasonable to expect that the rocks that were surrounding us there on the Mount of Olives, those are the very same rocks. That those were the rocks that Jesus was talking about when he looked to the Pharisees and says, look, if my people would be quiet, then those rocks would cry out. So I keep this rock on my desk, and it's a healthy reminder to me. It's a reminder to me that, number one, God doesn't need my worship. I mean, literally, God needs no worship. God is sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't need anything. But even with regards to receiving the worship that he's due, he doesn't depend on me for that. If I don't do the thing that God's called me to do, he'll just choose some other part of his creation to do exactly that. In addition to that, it's helpful for me to remember at times that just as it's impossible for this rock to stand up and, and sing praises to God in my fallen state, in my sinful nature, in my spiritual deadness, I can't do it either. That it is no less amazing for God to cause a man, a sinful man, a wretched man to stand up and sing praises to him than it would be for him to cause this rock to open its mouth and to sing praises right now. Healthy reminder that God was, God was showing us right there in that moment that all worship, all worship that he is due and all worship that he, that he receives, it ultimately originates with him. That he's the one that enables man to know him and that he's the one that enables man to worship him. But Jesus wasn't yet done teaching. And so we continue in verse 41. He's continued to show them just the, 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 the drastic difference between their expectations and the reality of why he came. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That as Jesus is coming down the other side of the Mount of Olives and, and, and Israel is, or excuse me, Jerusalem is in, is in sight for him. And between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem is this valley, the Kidron Valley. And it's through this valley that the blood of the sacrifices would have flown. As the blood goes out the back of the temple... It would have gone in with the, whatever water was flowing down the Kidron Valley, and you would, just, you would have seen it. Well, this time of year, the Passover, as there was more people there, and as the Passover lambs were being slain, as, and as things were being prepared, it would, have just, it would have just been full of blood, just blood rushing down this valley. And as Jesus is there, and he's looking, and he's recognizing that thousand years' worth of blood, millions upon millions of animals, and all of them were pointing forward to his death, that it would be his blood that would be shed. It would be his blood that would be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And he's there and he's looking at this. And surely the reality of all this is, is weighing upon him. And the weight of all this is, is, is weighing upon him. And he's looking off into this city. And he knows that he's not what they expected. He knows that he's not what they hoped for. He knows that they had created this Messiah in their own minds and that he's not it. He knows that their cries of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He knew that those cries would turn to crucify him just like that. 
And yet still, as he looks out at this city that would reject him, and he looks out at this people that would despise him, and he looks out at this people that would be thirsty for his blood, he wept. Scripture tells us that he wept. That he came as the prince of peace to offer peace to the city of peace. And yet these people had gotten it so twisted in their head. They believed that peace was just the absence of conflict with men. They believed peace was just the freedom from Rome. They believed that they could earn peace in their own power and in their own ability by keeping the law. They had their own pictures of what peace was, and yet he comes and he shows them. He shows them something so much greater. He shows them that you cannot have peace with men. You cannot have peace with yourself. You cannot have peace with your spouse. You cannot have peace with your children if you do not have peace with God. That what man most desperately needs is to be at peace with God. That when we see the angels singing at his birth, peace on earth, goodwill with him that God is well pleased. That he's saying not just peace with men. For centuries, men have, we, we, we tried to generate peace. How many people have come and promised peace? We know that's going to be one of the promises of the Antichrist. That he's going to come and he's going to manufacture something that looks like peace. And yet, he's coming to show us that there is no peace, absence peace with God. He comes and he offers this peace, and yet they don't recognize it. They don't recognize it. He had come to his own, and his own would reject him. They would despise him. They would cast away the stone, the stone that they would reject. He would become the cornerstone. And so he wept. He looked at these people that had no use for him. He looked at these people that would cry for his blood and would beat him and cry for his death, and he wept. He goes on to say that the reason that they would be destroyed, that the reason for their destruction, he, he didn't celebrate their destruction, but that the reason for their destruction is that they did not know the time of their visitation because the master had planted a vineyard and he had allowed some people to work that vineyard. He had allowed some people to enjoy the fruit of that vineyard for a season. And yet when he sent his servants to collect that which was his, they beat him and they killed him. So he sent his son saying, surely they will respect my son. Surely they will honor my son. And yet when his son came to collect that which was his, which was his by right, Instead, they tried to steal his inheritance for themselves. Instead of loving and honoring and obeying the master's son, they killed him. They cast him aside and they killed him. They rejected him, and yet still, Jesus wept. I need you to see this beautiful picture of mercy. That in this time when the world is telling us what we've got to look out for number one, in this time when men pride ourselves on being able to say, say that nobody got over on me, nobody gets over on me, I'm not a sucker, I'm not a sap, that we serve a risen Savior who was so merciful that even those that would spit upon him, even those that would cry for his death, even those that would reject him at every turn, he wept at their destruction. I don't find a call there in the life to follow Christ. I find a call to lay down our lives. I find a call to be merciful as he is merciful. I find a call to, yes, be taken advantage of. Certainly we're called to be wise. Certainly we're called to take care. Certainly we're called to, 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 to use the wisdom of God in this lifetime. But ultimately, yes, a life of following Christ means a life of being spat upon. It means a life of being abused. It means a life of being taken advantage of. And yet at the end of this life, when we see the destruction that is coming upon those that have done exactly that, we're to cry in mercy. We're to join Jesus Christ in crying in mercy for those that will receive the destruction. Destruction that they're due nonetheless. We remember that there on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Dear friends, somebody cuts me off on the road and I've got zero mercy. Somebody hurts one of my children, I've got even less mercy. Somebody speaks a careless word, I've got no mercy. And yet I claim to follow a risen Savior who not only laid down his life for the sake of sinners, but even those sinners that would never turn and trust in him, he cried for their mercy. That's my hope for us this Easter. 
That's my hope for us as we walk through this Holy Week, that we would be a people so merciful, so full of mercy and love and compassion and goodness of Jesus Christ, that even as we come out of the backside of this quarantine, and we will come out eventually, and all this love, think about it. What happened after 9-11? After 9-11, everybody loved each other. Everybody wanted to show up in church. Everybody wanted to hug their neighbor. Everybody wanted to sing Kumbaya. And it wasn't a matter of weeks and we were right back to acting just the way we had before. That all the love and all the compassion and all the unity that we experience right now, it's going to fade real quick once we're released and go back to normal life. And what we're going to find is there's going to be people out there that want to take advantage of us. There are going to be people that want to abuse us. There are going to be people that want to step on our toes. So my prayer is that we use this season right now to prepare for ourselves a heart of mercy. That we look to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. We look to him and we see the perfect picture of mercy and grace and love. And that so totally and completely changes us that no longer do we carry with us the right to be offended. That we recognize that the picture that we see here on Easter, the picture that we see here in the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the freedom that we find in that is not the freedom to go out and get even. It's not the freedom to demand anything. It's the freedom to lay down our life and have no fear of the eternal consequences, knowing that our eternity is secure. That's my hope for us this Easter. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that um, you are a merciful God. We thank you, Father, that you continue to show that mercy and that grace to us each and every day, Father, that there wasn't just one act of mercy there at the cross and then all bets were off. But, Father, you continue. You continue, Father, each day as we... So we stumble through this life and make a mess of it. You continue in your grace and in your mercy to lead us in the paths of righteousness. You continue to show your goodness and your mercy and your love. Father, we thank you for this week and all that it represents. We pray that you begin preparing our hearts, that we would use each and every opportunity throughout this week to point our hearts not just forward to the cross, but to the resurrection that comes on the backside of that. We pray, Father, that we would ourselves be ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors of mercy, and that the world would see something different in us. Not just during this time of quarantine and stress. But all the days that come after. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.